So, Greg, you're a focusing-oriented therapist? Yes. I mean, I would describe my uh, understanding of therapy in different ways, one of which would be focusing-oriented. Usually I describe it um, the opposite of whoever I'm talking to. So if I'm talking to focusing therapists, I probably wouldn't describe it that way. I would describe it as existential. And if I'm talking to existential therapists, I would probably describe it as focusing-oriented. Um, I'm not sure why I do that. I think I just like to take the <laughs> the um, least popular stance. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's also, in addition to the fun of doing that, maybe a sense of a focusing-oriented therapist already knows or has a sense of what focusing therapy is, and so you need to talk about the other side and vice versa. Yeah, it is that. It's um, refining a little bit what I mean by it. Uh, if I say I'm just focusing oriented to a bunch of focusing oriented therapists, they may assume they know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And when I work in a focusing oriented way, I, I think I have a somewhat different emphasis from some focusing oriented therapists, and that's what I want to emphasize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where the existential comes in. But maybe... You know, before we go too much into this, um, yeah. a point that it's not just in jest in a way to, to, um, um, not want to take words for granted because in lots of ways, this is what focusing is all about. You know, not to get pigeonholed into things have a precise meaning, but actually an invitation to explore. Absolutely. Uh, that's, fundamental not only to therapy but to how we understand therapy, how we understand life. I always um, want to sort of return things to an open unknownness. Mm -hmm. So whenever anything starts to feel a little bit too conceptual, a little bit too wrapped up, a little too much like we're all agreeing on something, I really want to open that up again. Um, and I try to watch myself and try to take unpopular stances in my own uh, understanding and challenge myself as much as other people. But absolutely, I, I want all of the, especially in therapy, um, in this day and age, it seems like things are becoming much more conceptual, much more um, technical, mm -hmm. I would say, as well. And not that all of that is useless by any means, but it worries me. And when I come across that in myself or in others, I want to challenge it and get us right back down to the experiential. Because I think at that level, no concept um, or any understanding is fixed. It mm -hmm. very quickly moves. It very quickly shifts to something a little bit more than we said a minute ago. Yeah, yeah. So I want to, to, to highlight that part of, you know, the distrust of what is conceptual, um, yeah. what is fixed, and going to that space of open unknownness, which essentially is a way to describe experience and its capacity to shift moment by moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think some people are concerned, um, I think, Perhaps some people that don't work more directly with the body, 
and don't work more directly with experience as it kind of shifts and changes in the body. Um, I think some of those people are worried that if we don't have the structure of the concepts or the understanding of approaches or models, that then we will have nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just a big gap opens, and then it's a free-for-all. Um, but I know that isn't true. And certainly my own understanding of what the body is and what therapy is and what life is has shifted a lot by kind of returning over and over again to that openness. My ideas have really had to change. Yeah, so in a way, instead of hanging on to uh, a need for structures, um, the focus on the body and on experience is actually puts us into a mode where the structure is the expectation of the constant shifting. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that expectation isn't always met. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, for me at least, I go into the body, I find an experience, and it's stuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, my expectation is that by being with it, it'll shift and change. And sometimes that doesn't happen. So then I start wondering, well, what am I doing wrong? As though this staying stuck isn't actually the information I need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I really... In the most subtle ways, I really notice how often I bring to my experience assumptions and preconceptions uh, that really get in the way. Mm-hmm. And so as you're describing this, is a, obviously something that happens at a personal level, that happens at the level of the therapist, and so there's this attitude of the noticing, of the noticing what you notice, of the uh, the assumptions, and uh, how this whole process is correcting, uh, you know, what is actually happening in the process. Exactly. Exactly. I agree with you. I would call it a corrective process. Mm-hmm. Um, there's times that I would say things that sound very unusual even to me, things like... Um, the body isn't very interested in my point of view. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, uh, it's almost as though the body just wants its vehicle back. It wants me to get in the back seat for a while. And it's, it's a strange experience when experientially you can feel the body pushing in a particular direction. It has, it's, it's very much has its own point of view. And it's often not my point of view. And it doesn't seem to care about that. And if I follow it long, long enough and kind of can open up to where it's taking me, even though it might seem in a direction I hadn't expected, um, often it, I realize that it's more deeply my point of view than my point of view was originally. Mm. It's almost more deeply me than the me that was in the way of it unfolding. Mm-hmm. So I want to, just um, push a little bit in the area when you say following the body because yeah. uh, people who are body psychotherapists tend to follow the body but each with different ways of following the body. So maybe yeah. if you talk a little bit more about how you follow the body. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Well, that part of my practice and my understanding of the world is based very much on Jenlin's work, of course. Um, 
I would follow the body by taking everything that seems to come from the body back to the body to check it and to see if there is an experiential response, if there's a feeling in the middle of the body, usually in the middle of the body, that seems to confirm what we've just thought together, the client and I. Um, so it's that back and forth checking mm-hmm. constantly with the body and the experience in the body. It's not, for me, although... I see the value of this. It's not manipulating the body. It's not, well, what happens if you uncross your arms or I notice that you're tapping your foot? Um, I'm much less likely to pay explicit attention to the physical body, the way it's manifesting. I'm much more likely to want to pay attention to what might be called the experiential body or the larger body or... Um, the energy body or something. I don't like any of those terms, but it's that form of body that I'm more guided, guided by. So let's do a little bit more with, for argument's sake, let's call it the experiential body and okay. talk about um, how it might play out in in a session, you know, as you're talking about um, connecting, you know, checking if the ideas uh, that have been mentioned are related to an experience in the experiential body. Yeah. The first thing I would say about that is it requires me to be in contact with the experiencing in my body. My feeling in my chest and my stomach usually, in the middle part of my body, is what guides the session from my point of view. Mm-hmm. It's not theory. It's not remembering what had happened in the session before. It is very much my moment-to-moment experiencing with the client. So it is as though my body gathers up what the client is saying or experiencing, and I'm sort of trying to make sense of it experientially inside of myself, and then I make a space to say that back to the client mm-hmm. to see if that resonates or not. Mm-hmm. So, so it is very... So so that sense of, um, you know, in a way, there's still a making sense of it. The difference is that instead of making sense of it in terms of logic, in terms of how it fits a theory, and it's Mm -hmm. really uh, an experiential resonance, an experiential way in which your body absorbs that information. And understanding that when you absorb it, it's your own absorbing. It's not necessarily a, a... objective reality, so the checking with the client, with this back-and-forth process. It's not clear to me, to be honest, if it's my own absorbing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not clear to me. There are times, usually, not always, but usually I can feel in my body when I haven't set it back correctly. And then if the client just accepts it, I'm not very convinced by that. If I don't feel the release inside of my own body, then I'm unconvinced that I've really got it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's even times when I have um, said something back to a client, and the client has accepted it, and I could feel in my own body a, you know, a certain degree of resonance, but I felt like there was just a little bit still that I hadn't been able to say. And if I wait and put that into words as well, my body then releases, it feels like. It opens up again. 
Mm-hmm. And often when I've pushed for that, it has, it's been important for the client as well. So it's not clear to me if it is accurate to talk about the client's body and my body. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a sense of maybe there is a field out there that, uh, you and the client are part mm-hmm. of and they're sensing into that field. That is one way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have another way of saying it, and yet I notice in myself not wanting to agree with that <laughs> way yeah. of saying it. But it's not because I have a better way. It's it's more like I um, <clears throat> I just don't want to have it pinned down at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's very consistent with what we were talking about before, that in a way, every time we start to want to pin something down, we're actually impoverishing it. That's what I feel. I don't, I, the best I can do usually is say, it's as though. If I make it into a metaphor, I'm mm-hmm. a little bit more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is as though there's, um, I don't know about the word field, but then there's an experiencing which includes us. The client and I. Mm-hmm. We're a part of it somehow. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's almost as though it lives itself through us while we're together in the session and we kind of pick up on it together in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That so, doesn't mean that, that there aren't times where I have a different point of view from the client because that happens as well. Yeah, yeah, but so that sense of, in a way, very consistent with the idea of um, therapy being an intersubjective, interactive field where you have two people happening and something happens. And so, in a way, this is something related to there is something happening when somebody is actually listening in a very active way and in a very embodied way uh, to the client's experience. Yes, absolutely. And um, and it's like my saying, my description of the client's experience can carry it forward in the client's body as much as their own description of their experience. It doesn't really matter so much who says it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So your own description of the client's experience is maybe the trained person's way of sensing what's there that might at times be helping the client where they're not necessarily sensing it. Yes, that's right. And in that sense, I would say that the work is very phenomenological mm-hmm. because I'm not trying to make something happen. I'm just noticing when something is happening and isn't being paid attention to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So very important distinction, not trying to make something happen, but noticing what happens. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and you pointed out before of how um, you 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 are in touch with your own sense, so that even if you said something that the client resonates with, but it doesn't quite feel right, uh, this is a totally okay part of the process to follow. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I can be quite transparent, and I can say to the client, well, it doesn't quite feel convincing to me, or I can say something, and if the client wants to pick it up as their own, and I'm unconvinced by it, I can sort of just say, well, I think that was just my idea, 
And sometimes get it out of the way quite easily. Sometimes it becomes a bigger deal than that. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's important in this discussion, from my point of view, is I've begun to wonder how much we individualize the things that we experience that may not be individual at all. Um, how much of what we actually experience and how much of what we see in the consulting room is not individual distress or individual pathology or whatever you want to call it, but actually is the living of a particular social and political time in the world. That people are coming in as individuals with problems that actually originate in, you might say, the field or in the social arena. Um, and in that respect, I've more and more I'm beginning to think of therapy as quite a political act. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so a sense that all of us, in a way, are not independent from the environment we live in. And uh, if say I'm coming from a smoke-filled room, I'm going to smell like smoke, whether I'm smoking or not. And if you were treating me as, you know, based on the smoke without realizing that I'm just coming from a smoke-filled room, you would actually be ignoring the largest thing that has to do with that smell. Exactly. And even worse, if I was trying to help you adapt to that smoke-filled room, (laughs) rather than saying... You know, maybe that room shouldn't be full of smoke. Yeah. Maybe the problem is the room, the atmosphere there. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think that is really important. I, as a focusing oriented or as an existential or what I sometimes say experiential existential therapist, I'm more and more uh, interested in and concerned about the wider world, the world outside of the consulting room, and not making so much of a distinction between those two worlds, the world of the two of us in some comfortable office and the larger world, mm-hmm. and wanting to make that link more explicitly, and wanting to move outside of the consulting room and bring some of what we know about the body and about experiential listening out into groups who are trying to have an impact in society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so there's a fine line between, in a way, uh, adapting to the world in the sense of finding a way to enjoy the smoke-filled room, or to, but also make room for sometimes what cannot be changed. And so, uh, but it, it's, it's done, it's walking that fine line with the understanding that it's not, the problem is not the, the client's pathology necessarily, or yeah. not looking at it from that angle, but looking right. at it as a sense of how to adapt to, a, to an environment. Yes. Or how to, to, to dance with it or what to do with it, not necessarily adapt, but yes. how to how to act. Yeah, exactly. How to act. And there could be all sorts of acting even in hopeless situations. Um it might be possible to be defiant without being resentful. Mm-hmm. And to not accept the situation even though there is no alternative, at least seemingly so at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you have to accept it. Yeah. And so we're talking about phenomenology, but we're also talking about existential, that sense of, you know, here I am, 
and where do I go? Right, left, back, you know, sideways. Yeah. Um, moment by moment, it's that question. It's uh, it's not just experience by itself, but it's experience together with what do I do next? Exactly. And the other thing that that makes me think of is how much we try to act on our own. And perhaps more than we do even as therapists. And maybe we should be encouraging our clients in this direction is to find a we, to find others in the world with whom there is a kind of a resonance with, with whom there can be, um, an authentic relationship and together see what can we do. Because I think as soon as you have even a group of three people together, there's new possibilities and new potential than if you're trying to do something on your own. You have your therapy session and then you go out into the world and you're on your own. Um, I think we, we need to move away from that model. Mm-hmm. Therapy, therapy, unfortunately, I think, reinforces that model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so maybe in a practical way, it's the sense of, okay, so you found it helpful to be with me. It's been nice for you to see two brains are better than one. Let's try what happens if you have three. And, <laughs> and. <laughs> yeah, and even if we, and, and again, I have to say, I'm not sure it's three brains. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yes. I'm just not sure. Three not embodied. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, three manifestations of uh, braining together. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not making any claims. I'm only wanting to loosen the claims we make. No, I'm, I'm following you. I'm, yeah, I'm okay. enjoying the <laughs> interaction <laughs> that way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, I think part of it is uh, it's, a, it's a reminder of the limitations of our language and the phrases we use. Yes. That we feel time and again drawn into the old uh, cliché of mind, body, uh, uh, brain, uh, where actually what we're talking about is something different and we don't have the vocabulary for it. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And also we get drawn back into the conventional ways of being together. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly uh, with my clients, I can feel that all the time, being pulled back into some kind of a therapist role or the client being pulled back into some kind of role in the story they're telling about something that's happening in their lives. And you get a meeting of three or four people together who wants to change the world in some positive way. And how quickly, even though they might be radical thinkers, their way of being together gets pulled back into old patterns of structuring a meeting. Mm-hmm. I really would like us to be to really hone our awareness of how easy it is to get pulled back into convention. Mm-hmm. And I really think in this day and age, not only in therapy, but definitely in therapy, but also in the wider world, we're being challenged because the world is changing in some way that we don't understand. And I think we do really need to call upon that heightened awareness that the body has, or that the body is, maybe is a better way to say it, to be able to call upon that and to bring that into our ways of organizing, our ways of being together in therapy and our ways of organizing outside of therapy, to continually fall back onto the body and say, hold on a minute, 
Let's just pause for a second here. What are we doing? We're, we're creating a subcommittee. Do we really need to do that, or is that just what we habitually do at this point when we tackle an issue? And to question everything we're doing. I, I would like us to come up with something more creative and something new and innovative. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think we're being challenged to, to do that. And if we don't bring the body into it and the humanity of the body into it, I think that that space is going to be filled by technology alone, and that may not be the best solution. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about both something that is um, a general comment about us human beings in our lives, and also um, what happens in therapy. Absolutely. And in terms of therapy, what I'm hearing you say is you're not about to say here are the three steps or the five steps to make sure that you're doing it right. But Mm -hmm. you were talking about just the taking a moment, you know, that intentionality of taking a moment is, wait a minute, what is happening here? So the Mm -hmm. intentionality of taking a moment and sensing inside Mm -hmm. uh, and having access by simply sensing inside, having access to that experiential body information, whatever the right name might be, Uh, And in doing that, uh, also in a way training the client uh, in that mode of being. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say training the client. (laughs) (laughs) I would be more inclined to say, because actually, to be honest, there's times the client does it for me. Yeah. You know, there's times that I might go up into my head with some brilliant idea that I'm importing, and there's something the client does that brings me back. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about being with another person that at least has this potential of an anchor, and it can happen either way. Um, but I wouldn't want to say training the client. I think I would, let me just see if I could say that in a way that I can stomach. Um I think I would be more inclined to say sharing with the client a sensitivity for that level of of human existence that we typically do not pay attention to. Mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. sharing a moment of that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah. to me. I was at a conference just a couple of weeks ago, and I was presenting with some uh, other people. And we were on kind of a panel, and one person spoke and spoke very evocatively about um, working with refugees. And then we we're going straight on to the next person on the panel who was going to speak about something equally exciting and evocative and important. And I butted in and I said, "Well, just just hold on a second. Let's just pause a minute and really kind of take in what this first person had said." And it was, uh, it felt very shocking to me in a conference with, I don't know how many people there, to have a moment of silence. And then it was shocking to me that that should be shocking. Why in conferences, I mean, that's a, this is a, just one example of convention. Mm-hmm. It's like somebody's always talking. Yeah. Why don't we say, okay, we've listened to this person, let's just take two minutes and just see, settle into ourselves, see how this is resonating with us. I rarely go to conferences that have that kind of thing built in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's where maybe I'm going back to what I said a couple of minutes ago. Um, you know, you 
when I, I use the word training, which, you know, has its limitations. Uh, but when you said sharing, there yeah. is something missing in sharing because I think what you bring in is an intentionality, the intentionality to notice these moments in yourself and mm-hmm. to notice them in the client. So while maybe training is the wrong word because it's a bit mechanical, there is, I think to me, that sense of uh, having learned the value yes. of the pause yeah. Having learned the value of looking for, of making time, of priming the pump, of expecting, of being open to, you know, whatever the right words are, for some inner experience to come in, mm-hmm. uh, and appreciating its value. Yes. And, um, and, and, and of encouraging or of, of, of sharing. And the sharing can take the form of recognizing when the clients does it. Yes. Know, but something about that, that, very, very strong value, which is the antidote to conventional meaning going on its way without a moment to think, without questioning the basic assumptions. Yes, I agree with you. It's, it, sometimes it is just sharing, and it's as humble as that. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's almost an insistence, from my point of view, based upon uh, what I've learned from practicing as a focusing person for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're right, sometimes it is more than sharing. But I wouldn't want to say training because that, in, to me, the way I would use that word, that, um, although it might be true, it might be an accurate word, I still don't want to use it because it's... Um, it sounds too much like there's a power relationship between me and the client. And it sounds like I'm, although it's true, I was going to say it sounds like I'm encouraging the client to break a, an old habit <laughs> in order to form a new one. But that's true. I am at times, I am encouraging that. I just don't like the word training. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, for me, training has a negative connotation of being like there is a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it, and it can be pretty mechanical. So I'm not hung up on one word, but Mm I just wanted to highlight that maybe there is an ambiguity that on the one hand, in some way, we want to not be representatives of a hierarchical model and of authority. But in some way, you know, we do embody authority and there is a part where uh, transference and and positive stuff comes from a certain amount of authority that we embody, but just not in a certain way. And it might be hard to define. So maybe do you want to address a little bit the issue of of authority? uh, Mm -hmm. It's a good it's a good point you're making. I don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I think I don't agree with it at the level of linguistics rather than I, I do agree with what you're pointing at. Um, I would tend to typically work... I, I was going to say, I would tend to typically work in a way that really deconstructs my authority. Um and I'm thinking, I certainly have clients that would not see me as an authority. 
even if I might want them to. <laughs> There's times I might, I might want them to just agree with what I'm saying, just agree with me and do it, uh, but they don't. Um, so I'm not sure about the authority. I would say the authority comes from someplace else, and I might be uh, kind of guiding something. I might have the authority enough to... Um, I, I have the authority enough to point. I think I can point at something. But what's more, what more typically happens, I don't in therapy teach my clients to focus usually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more likely that I encourage them in my way of reflecting back. I encourage them to notice when something hits home and when it doesn't. And in that way, I think it's a much more natural process. They realize that, oh, my body does that. And my body can be the guide here in the session. And they gain to say my body. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. But certainly it's at that level that we're both being guided. So I, I think you want to use the word authority as the person that knows something about that and can point towards that. And I have to agree with you if that's how you want to use the word. But I don't want to use the word authority. Yeah, yeah. And so, again, word authority is so fraught. And it's a great example when you were using it to say, you know, if I want to tell a client what to do. And obviously that's a certain kind of authority. But, you know, there's a different kind of meaning when you talk about somebody who's walked the way of listening in a certain way and of being open to that experience and in a way speaks from experience. And so in that sense, the word authority would be the authority of speaking from knowledge of what it's like to travel that road and to share that experience. Yeah, certainly. And I would say that as someone who has learned the value of not knowing, Mm -hmm. I can claim to be a person who's learned the value of not knowing, although I can't claim that I always adhere to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I certainly do know the value of not knowing something. And yeah. slowing down, uh, I know the value of that. Yeah. So I, I can say that much to a client without, without question. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, these are very powerful words. Uh, somebody who appreciates the value of not knowing and, mm-hmm. and the value of slowing down yes. and of staying with that. That's right. And it's not not knowing as a failure of knowing. It's not knowing as a much more precious thing than knowing. Mm-hmm. It's the value of not knowing, not that not knowing is just what we're left with when we don't know. Yeah, yeah. So that deep appreciation for the not exactly. knowing. Exactly, yeah. and protecting it. Mm-hmm. Protecting the not knowing. Yeah. So I want to check if, you know, obviously there's a lot more that you could say about all these things. <laughs> but given the constraints of time, uh, does it feel like a good place to end or would you like to add something else? Maybe if I could just review a few of the things that yeah. we've touched on. Yeah. Um, things that are important to me is not... Uh, because I think some of these things are very countercultural in the current therapy world. Um, and so one of those things is not getting hung up, hung up in the conceptual or in technique, 
And when we have concepts, allowing them to migrate, allowing the concept to come into the current usage of it so that it can shift and change and become more than what it was just a minute ago when we first attached it to whatever was happening. So it's to kind of deconstruct concepts, and it's to have, as we were just saying, this sometimes very radical sense of not knowing, not even knowing what should happen in therapy, not even knowing what therapy is, not knowing what life is, uh, and just kind of being quite open to that. Mm-hmm. And in, I guess related to that is not knowing what is the status of the client and me when we're in the therapy room. Are we two separate beings? In what sense are we separate and in what sense are we not separate? Because we're there as the environment of each other. And just keeping that as a question. And then the final thing from my point of view is this not individualizing distress. I think we do so much of that in psychotherapy. And I'm questioning that more and more. How much of what we see in psychotherapy is not actually, is almost masquerading as individual distress. Mm. Thanks, Greg. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.